0: It's finally here and you can get your hands on your own copy of Art Curious, stories of the unexpected, slightly odd, and strangely wonderful in art history. You'll love the book, which includes some never before shared tales of art history, stories about America's favorite grandpa of graphic design and how he became radicalized in the 1960s, how two women may have beaten Vasily Kandinsky to being deemed the world's first abstract artists, and a deeper dive into the debate over who created one of the most shocking artworks of all time. Art Curious, Stories of the Unexpected, Slightly Odd, and Strangely Wonderful in Art History, published by Penguin Books, is available right now wherever you buy your books, ebooks, and audiobooks. You can also read more about it and order your copy, and one for a friend, at artcuriousbook.com. That's artcuriousbook.com. Hello, hello, everybody. Jennifer here, and we are happy to be dropping this second part of your listener favorite number one episode, Van Gogh. Thank you so much for listening to this sort of interstitial season of the Art Curious podcast where we were able to play your top five favorite episodes, all the way from people like Elizabeth Vigée Lebrun to Artemisia Gentileschi to The Theft of the Mona Lisa and Vincent Van Gogh today. So thank you again for everyone who's been tuning in, everyone who voted on their favorite episodes this season. And thank you, of course, for the many of you who have dropped me a note to tell me how much you've been enjoying the book as much as anything else. Thank you so much. And we are excited that next week, October 12th, we will be dropping our newest episodes in our latest season. That's season eight. So get ready for that. Stay subscribed and looking forward to sharing the new stuff with you very soon. Please note that this episode contains adult content, including information and details of suicide. So please take care when listening. Last time on the Art Curious podcast, we dug deep into the life and legend of Vincent van Gogh, specifically revolving around the nature and cause of his death. In the over 100 years since his passing, van Gogh's suicide has been a widely accepted story put forth by experts and amateurs alike. And then in 2011, Authors Gregory White Smith and Stephen Nafee dropped their art historical bombshell in their book, Van Gogh the Life, and Vincent became a hot topic once more, his name scattered across thousands of websites and morning shows. Was Vincent Van Gogh murdered, or could his death have been an accidental killing instead of suicide? Some people think that visual art is dry, boring, lifeless. But the stories behind those paintings, sculptures, drawings, and photographs are weirder, crazier, or more fun than you can imagine. And today we are finishing out our two-part revisiting of the death of Vincent van Gogh to come to our conclusion. Suicide, murder, or accident? This is the Art Curious Podcast, exploring the unexpected, the slightly odd, and the strangely wonderful in art history. I'm Jennifer Dassel. Gregory White Smith and Stephen Naifeh spent more than 10 years researching and writing Van Gogh, The Life, which they hoped would become the definitive biography of Vincent Van Gogh. During that time, they were given rare access to the archival vaults of the Van Gogh Museum, which included everything from the artist's preparatory sketches to hundreds of his handwritten letters. Once the authors began sorting methodically through this trove of information, they started finding strange or conflicting information about the reports of the artist's supposed suicide. The first bit of intriguing information was the final letter that Vincent Van Gogh ever wrote, posted to Tao on the day he shot himself. According to Smith and Nafi the tone was joyful and energetic, with Vincent discussing his future. He also mentioned to Teo that he had placed a large order for new paint so he was clearly thinking of his work and seemed as engaged as ever. This naturally conflicts with the idea that he was despondent and suicidal. The second thing that struck the authors was the early first-hand accounts of Vincent's death. No one ever called it a suicide and most referred to the events as simply Vincent having quote wounded himself, never attempting to kill himself. And most importantly, no one was ever able to locate the revolver with which he supposedly shot himself. And no one, of course, came forward as a witness to any shooting. All of this doesn't seem too suspicious to me upon first glance, but it planted in Smith and Nafy a seed of conspiratorial doubt. It seemed, they reckoned, that perhaps Van Gogh didn't intend to kill himself at all, and that a tall tale about suicide became the accepted narrative. So where did the accepted tale of suicide actually begin then? Smith and Nafee point to one particular suspect, Emile Bernard, a fellow artist and supposed friend of Vincent's, who reported the suicide story to an art critic whom he desperately hoped to impress. Bernard wrote that Vincent went into the wheat fields that evening and, quote, left his easel against a haystack and fired a revolver shot at himself, unquote. Now, we should note that Bernard is getting this information secondhand, Or he might very well have just made it all up, because while he did attend Vincent's funeral, he most certainly was not in Auvers prior to that point. Bernard, too, was known to be a fan of heightened drama, and he had already used his friend Vincent as a subject of a histrionic recollection a few years prior, when he relayed the tale of Vincent van Gogh's cut-off ear, spiced with extra emotion, to that very same art critic. In their recounting of the traditional take on van Gogh's death, Smith and Nafee returned to that other eyewitness account, namely Adeline Ravoux's 1953 recollection. This is what we discussed in our last episode. And Smith and Nafee began to review it hypercritically. They then throw in every weapon in their arsenal, no pun intended, at Ravoux in attempt to debunk her tale. For example, she was old when she recorded her testimony. She relied too heavily on her father's recounting of the event, which certainly had morphed over the years and that her own version of the story had changed in its retelling as well, possibly to become even more dramatic. So that myth-making machine was working yet again. A final, perhaps damning piece of evidence was that in 1953, it was the 100th anniversary of Van Gogh's birth, and celebrations, press, and expositions abounded throughout the world, bringing the artist back into the spotlight. Adeline Ravoux may very well have been capitalizing on a grand opportunity and really good timing. There was also the fact that Smith and Nafee couldn't find enough hard evidence in their years of research to actually get comfortable with the whole suicide theory. As we well remember, police looked for the weapon, to no avail. No one was a witness to the actual shooting, nor could the location of said shooting be fully determined. All that we have is legend, and Ravoux's tale. That is, until Smith and Nafy brought forward the discovery of another supposed first-hand account that had somehow been overlooked or forgotten for many years. In 1956, a frail man in his 80s named René Secretan stepped forward to give a series of interviews to French journalist Victor Douateau. Like Adeline Ravoux three years earlier, he claimed to have a first-hand recollection of the famous artist. To Duarteau, Secretin spun a long, detailed narrative about his young adulthood. René grew up in a prosperous Parisian family, and every summer, the Secretan crew would travel to Auvers to enjoy the relaxed surroundings of their vacation villa. In 1890, René was 16 years old, and spent his time hunting, fishing, and generally causing all kinds of outdoorsy mischief with a group of like-minded pals. His hero was Buffalo Bill Cody, the American hunter and showman whose Wild West shows had performed to massive sold-out crowds in Paris just the year before, during 1889's Exposition Universelle. Cody ran a show that included these full-scale reenactments of Native American attacks on stagecoaches, of horse races and rodeos, and shooting demonstrations featuring the likes of Annie Oakley. Incidentally, and as a side note, Vincent, Teo, and others from their artistic coterie attended that exposition that year, and most of them, however, were far more intrigued by the foreign aesthetics of the Japanese pavilion instead of paying attention to the Wild West show. But back to Rene. He, like so many others of the time, was absolutely mad for the cowboy craze, and he took his obsession with the American West to the extreme. So when his family moved to Auvers for that summer, Rene brought with him a much-prized costume containing a buckskin tunic, boots, and a cowboy hat, all purchased in Paris. But he felt the need to add a little more authenticity to his getup, So he supplemented with one more element. A 38 caliber pistol, which according to Rene, was a real gun, but one that worked erratically. He used it to shoot birds and squirrels in the countryside, but it also did double duty as a fairly convincing imitating apparatus. You see, René Sacretemps wasn't the nicest kid in town. In fact, some of his favorite activities were to play pranks on the locals and to cause mayhem throughout the countryside. And in the summer of 1890, there was one particular person whom he especially enjoyed terrorizing. René Secrétan had an older brother named Gaston, who was the opposite of René. Whereas the younger Secrétan boy was loud, British, and a troublemaker, Gaston was quiet, kinder, and more interested in art, culture, and music. So it is unsurprising that Gaston fell in with a solitary Dutch painter who wanted to spend his time talking shop and having a drink with a like-minded esthete. On occasion, René would tag along with Gaston and listen into his conversations with Vincent van Gogh at the local bar. Mostly though, he just wanted the opportunity to torment this man, who seemed to be an easy target for his mockery and practical jokes, like putting salt in his coffee or hiding a garden snake in his paint box. At first, Vincent seemed to take the teasing in stride. After all, René was just a teenager. And if any of you have ever known a teenage boy, then you know that they are prone to all kinds of generalized idiocy. But then, something shifted. René's pranks escalated, and Vincent grew more wrathful at his mistreatment. As Smith and Nafee recount, By July of 1890, the atmosphere between the teen and the Dutchman had grown poisonous. For Smith and Nafee, little things began adding up an antagonistic moody teenager, a malicious relationship, a revolver that literally seemed trigger-happy. Ultimately, they came to an alternative explanation of Vincent van Gogh's death. René Sécrétan, they say, shot van Gogh, either on purpose or accidentally. As the authors write in Van Gogh, The Life, quote, Renee had a history of teasing Vincent in a way intended to provoke him to anger. Vincent had a history of violent outbursts, especially when under the influence of alcohol. Once the gun in Rene's rucksack was produced, anything could have happened, intentional or accidental, between a reckless teenager with fantasies of the Wild West, an inebriated artist who knew nothing about guns, and an antiquated pistol with a tendency to malfunction." If Rene shot Vincent, it would be fairly easy to extrapolate what happened next. Vincent, probably unaware of the extent of his wound, may then have felt that his best option was to travel back to his room at the Ravou Inn. And René, terrified of his actions, may have cleaned up the crime scene as best as he could, collecting Vincent's art supplies, gun, and abandoning any evidence of their encounter. In their book, Smith and Nafi do a fine job of breaking down this theory element by element, even adding a series of explanatory bullet points to demonstrate how their reconstruction fills in the gaps of the original narrative and eliminates areas of contradiction and doubt. It explains the lack of a weapon, as well as the inability to locate any of Van Gogh's art supplies from that day. And then there's also the supposed inconsistencies of the bullet wound. No autopsy was ever done on the artist but the doctors that attended his bedside, Dr. Gachet, as well as a man named Dr. Joseph Mazury, did firmly note that the angle at which the bullet had entered was oblique and not straight on as one would expect from a suicide or a shot from extremely close range. Also, wouldn't a suicidal person prefer to get the job done efficiently with a shot to the head instead of a blow to the chest or belly? Finally, there's that lack of a suicide note. Van Gogh was undoubtedly close to his brother, Tao, Wouldn't he have said goodbye to the person who loved him most in the world? The only caveat to this theory, according to the biographers, is Van Gogh's assurance to the innkeeper Ravoux and to the police that he had committed the shooting, and had done so with the express desire of bringing death upon himself. But Smith and Nafie naturally have a response to this. Vincent, they say, welcomed the opportunity to die. Considering his depression and history of mental illness, life wasn't a bunch of roses for him, and so perhaps the idea of it coming to an end was a type of consolation, as well as a convenient way to eliminate his burdensome presence on his brother's life. Indeed, the artist had once written and underlined the following statement, quote, I would not expressly seek death, but I would not try to evade it if it happened, If René Secretan accidentally did the artist a favor then, why would Vincent sell René's name, as well as that of his prominent family, by calling him a murderer? Now, let me take the opportunity to step in here and say that the first thing I thought of when I read this account was that the timing of René Secretan's story seemed rather suspicious. Like the Adéline Ravoux story, there was another Van Gogh milestone in 1956, the year that Tan came forward with his account. It happened to be the year that the film version of Lust for Life hit theaters. So Van Gogh was once again on everyone's mind. Rene noted that he wanted to tell his tale because Kirk Douglas's portrayal of the artist was so markedly different from the Van Gogh that Rene himself had known, and he wanted to set the record straight. It seems that Rene mostly wanted to clarify the artist's personality. Unlike Kirk Douglas, the real Van Gogh wasn't Hollywood handsome or so honorable in clean living. He was, in fact, a total mess, prone to getting staggeringly drunk, occasionally belligerent, and all around ragged. René Sacretan then, wanted to take some of the shine off the apple, so to speak, and all the attention surrounding lust for life provided that opportune moment. But it's not so simple, is it? In his narrative to journalist Duarteau, Secretan was clear and lucid, and much of what he represented and reported is viable by other accounts and witnesses. And he was surprisingly upfront about his own shortcomings, especially in regard to his bullying of Vincent. However, there was one part of the story that seemed not to fit. And that was Secretan's ultra-brief discussion of Vincent's death. It is here, Smith and Nafie say, that René Secretin turns nondescript and his mostly distinct memories become muddled. He told Duarte that he knew nothing of Van Gogh's death, as his parents had opted to leave Auvers prior to the incident. But Smith and Nafe write that others claim to have seen the Secretin family in town on the day of the incident. Finally, Secretin stated that he only learned about Vincent's death later in a Parisian newspaper, but he couldn't remember which paper he read. And Smith and Nafy note that no such reports have ever been found. The only point that Rene conceded was that, yes, Vincent had used his pistol. That part was true. But Rene said that Vincent had obviously stolen it from Rene's rucksack. And Rene only realized it was missing after the fact. Here again, Smith and Nafy shed some doubt upon Rene Secretan's narrative. Two things in particular struck them as odd. First, there was the fact that Renee so loved having that pistol around for its intimidation and coolness factors, that it seemed very strange that he wouldn't have noticed it was missing, particularly when he supposedly carried it with him everywhere. But even sketchier is his insistence that he wasn't around for the actual shooting, and that the gun was never found. For me, here's the stinger. Smith and Nafee report that during the brief police investigation after the shooting, Officials performed a town-wide inventory of all revolvers, which were rarely found in Auvers. Only one, apparently, was missing. The one that had been last in the possession of René Sacretin. And where was René at this point? The police noted that he, along with his brother Gaston, had been spirited away from Auvers by their father in the middle of the night, only hours after the shooting. So, how was this theory of the possible murder of Vincent van Gogh accepted when it was first published? That's coming up next, right after this break. If you're a regular listener to Art Curious, then you've heard me thank our production partner Kaboomki for making each of our episodes sound so incredible. They've been with us since the beginning, and now they're here for you, too. Need production and editing help for your own podcast? Sure. Full-service video for your film or marketing project? You bet. How about original content for your website or campaign? No sweat. Kaboomki does it all for video, audio, or whatever your medium. Their award winning team has the tools and talent to elevate everything you do. Get to know our friends at Kabunki like we do and tell them Art Curious sent you. Visit kabunki.com. That's dot I.com. Kabunki, a silly name, but superb content. Welcome back to Art Curious. Some of you may remember that when Van Gogh The Life was published in 2011, this alternate theory of the artist's death made quite an impression. Around the world, headlines blazed in all caps and huge fonts. Was Van Gogh murdered? they screamed. It was the ultimate in art historical clickbait. But I believe that such attention came as a surprise to Smith and Nafee. They hadn't made their hypothesis as a major revelation in the book. And in fact, they buried it in the very back, in an appendix to their nearly 1,000-page volume. But it didn't much matter. The revelation spread like wildfire, and all around the world, art historians, curators, and critics jumped to the forefront to give their opinions on the demise of a man gone for over 120 years. And a couple of years later, they sent two of their heavy hitters, senior researchers from the Van Gogh Museum, in fact, to refute the biography's claims. In the July 2013 issue of the eminent art journal The Burlington Magazine, researchers Louis van Tilborg and Theo Miedendorp struck back with an article titled The Life and Death of Vincent van Gogh. It is a very thorough and painstaking discussion, with the majority of the article dedicated to countering the murder claim. Van Tilborg and Miedendorf take Smith and Nafi's hypothesis and dissect it bit by bit in an attempt to prove its falsity. They note that in certain circumstances, much of the biographer's theories are plain assumptions made based on the tone of René Secretan's statements and not the statements themselves. For example, Secretan's assurance that he knew nothing of Van Gogh's death is viewed by Smith and Nafy as a lie. But for all we know, it could actually be a true statement, which is how Van Tilburg and Maidendorp read it. This point about differing interpretations also plays into how the scientific or medical evidence can be read. For Smith and Nafee, the detail of Vincent's wounds, the angle of the bullet entry, the fact that the bullet never exited the body, and the types of powder residue and the bruising around the wound, those all speak to the fact that the gun was apparently shot from somewhat of a distance, and certainly not by Vincent. Their notes reference that these deductions came to be after seeking assistance from various ballistics and medical professionals who would be familiar not only with the bullet injuries but also with the type and usage of guns that might produce those injuries. The evidence, they say, is clear. Van Gogh was murdered. But Van Tilborg and Meedendorp state that their medical experts claim the opposite. For example, that the gunpowder residue present around the wound would have been found on the skin only if Vincent had lifted his shirt to put the barrel to his own chest. And would René Secretan have done such an odd thing? The counter-arguments to the Smith and Nafy narrative is, in my opinion, quite thorough and convincing, especially when they move to a final point, the reasoning behind a suicide. Their analysis is comprehensive and lengthy, but in summary, it comes down to this. Smith and Nafy point to multiple passages in Van Gogh's own letters where he writes to Théo about his moral opposition to suicide. Remember that Vincent originally hoped to become a clergyman, and a sincere and strong Protestant worldview was very much at work throughout his life. The biographers then made a simple conclusion. Vincent van Gogh wouldn't have killed himself, as he didn't believe in it. But van Tilborg and Maidendorp made the argument that one can trace van Gogh's shifting opinions on this matter, particularly after his mental health started deteriorating and he committed himself to the asylum at Saint-Rémy. Vincent was all too aware that he was both an emotional and financial albatross around his brother's neck, especially at the end of his life. And he made this clear to Theo too. In fact, there was a draft of a letter to Theo that was found on Vincent van Gogh's body when he shot himself, one which specifically shows Vincent's awareness of his brother's financial responsibilities and difficulties. This wasn't his final letter, mind you. It was actually a draft of an earlier one. Regardless killing himself wouldn't seem like such a stretch as a way out of such familial anguish. Essentially, between these two sets of authors, it really comes down to a battle of the evidence and the interpretation of that evidence. Which one is right? The fact of the matter is we don't have enough facts. We don't have a really clear direction that lets us know fully that Van Gogh killed himself or was killed by another person we are left with multiple narratives, most written far after the fact. It's just difficult to know what happened on July 27, 1890. The Smith and Nafee theory actually became more popular recently when it went slightly more mainstream, thanks to a new 2018 biopic about Vincent van Gogh, directed by the artist and filmmaker Julian Schnabel. This film, titled At Eternity's Gate, and featuring the awesome Willem Dafoe as our main man Vincent, takes the position that it was indeed Secretan who pulled the trigger. But in an interview with The Hollywood Reporter, Julian Schnabel sort of sidestepped this assertion of the liberties he was taking with Van Gogh's biography, perhaps as a way to stave off criticism of the murder or killer theory. About the ending of At Eternity's Gate, Schnabel said, quote, If he killed himself or if he didn't is irrelevant to me. I think all history is a lie. If you watch the movie Rashomon, you get five different stories of the same event, so I would not get hung up on what actually happened to cause Vincent van Gogh's death." Unquote. In my humble opinion, I find the story that Smith and Nafi report to be very intriguing. But honestly, it's kind of hard for me to buy it. I concur with Van Tilborg and MetaDorp's treatment about van Gogh's fluctuating psychological state, particularly when you consider his long battle with depression. Depression is an utterly terrible thing, and of course it can make people consider options that they might never do otherwise, including suicide, even if they had previously confirmed that they are opposed to it. So Van Gogh's strong dismissal of a suicide throughout his life doesn't necessarily persuade me. Then there's also the fact that he may have attempted suicide before, with that possible self-poisoning incident while staying at the asylum in Saint-Rémy that we discussed in our last episode it doesn't seem like too much of a stretch to me that he might have attempted to do it again. It does make me question, though, why he didn't just try poisoning again, since he would have had access to the deadly chemicals in his paint kit and would have been more familiar with their usage and their abuse. Well, I suppose that the answer could very well be that Vincent may have thought of a gun as a sure thing, and if he hadn't succeeded in killing himself via poisoning the first time, perhaps trying it again would have seemed foolhardy. All that being said, there's just one more piece of information to tackle. In July 2016, the Van Gogh Museum in Amsterdam held a brand new exhibition called On the Verge of Insanity, which profiled the artist and his work through the lens of his madness and mental instability. As part of that exhibition, curators included a number of artifacts central to the artist's life and death. The item that received the most interest is a small, rusted revolver. Nienke Bakker, the museum's curator of paintings, said in a press release, It was found in 1960 in the field where Van Gogh shot himself and has since been in private care. Forensic experts studied the amount of corrosion, ultimately declaring the gun to have been buried underground between 1880 and 1910, fitting the range of when the artist took his life. And as Bakker confirmed, The small size of the gun also explains why its bullet didn't exit Van Gogh's body and why he didn't die immediately. The handgun was too small and too ineffective to properly kill a human being. But, of course, even this curatorial note still leaves me asking at least one more question. Backer confirms that the gun was buried. So, who buried it? Was it as simple as being covered up by the elements, dirt and debris, Did the injured and suffering artist perform this as one of his final acts before trudging back to the inn? Or did someone else bury the gun? Ultimately, though, it really doesn't matter how Van Gogh died. And I will rightfully admit that my discussion today probably just adds fuel to the fire of that Van Gogh myth. So I will get right to the most important point now. Either way, accidental killing, murder, or suicide. The way that Van Gogh died isn't the important part. What is important is that this artist lived. Though he passed away too early, his flame burns bright, amazingly bright, and he left behind many hundreds of incredible works of art that have not only inspired generations, but have actually changed the course of history. His paintings combined his interests in nature with his deeply emotional and spiritual life, leading to works of art that are more expressive and psychologically profound than the subjects which they illustrate. His style, too, has influenced some of the most important painters that came after him. His aforementioned use of bright colors would eventually be a hallmark of the works of the Fauvists like Henri Matisse, and his impulsive, thick application of paint would inspire the works of abstract expressionists like Jackson Pollock. So much of the 20th century owes a great deal of debt to Vincent van Gogh, and many, many books have been written extolling him and his art. I think he would probably get a kick out of all the attention today. When he was alive, it was still a dream fueled by hopes and passions. As he wrote, quote, By working hard, I hope to make something good one day. I haven't yet, but I am pursuing it and fighting for it. Unquote. Coming next Monday, it's the start of Art Curious Season 8, so get ready for some brand new favorites. Thank you for listening to this listener favorite episode of the Art Curious Podcast. This episode was written, produced, and narrated by me, Jennifer Dassel. Our theme music is by Alex Davis at alexdavismusic.com. Our logo is by Dave Rainey at davraineydesign.com. And social media help is by Emily Crockett. Our production and editorial services are provided by Kabunki Video, Content, Ideas. Learn more at kabonki.com. Additional audio editing is by Hannah Roberts. The Art Curious podcast is sponsored primarily by Anchorlight. Anchorlight is a creative space founded with the intent of fostering artists, designers, and craftspeople at varying stages of their development. Home to artist studios, residency opportunities, and exhibition space, Anchorlight encourages mentorship and the cross-pollination of skills among creatives in the triangle. Please visit anchorlightraleigh.com. The Art Curious Podcast is also fiscally sponsored by VAE Raleigh, a 501c3 nonprofit creativity incubator. For more details on our show, including the images mentioned in our episodes, please visit our website, artcuriouspodcast.com. We are also on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Art Curious Pod. And again, mark your calendar. Season 8 of the Art Curious Podcast begins next Monday. Subscribe now and share the news. It's going to be one of our best seasons yet. So check back next week as we continue to explore the unexpected, slightly odd, and strangely wonderful in art history.